everyone, I'm Hannah and this is Kim and we are instructional designers at Bell Vista Studios and in this video today we really want to share with you how to write scenario questions. So we've worked on a project recently on scenario questions so it's quite fresh in our mind and it is something that we do as instructional designers, we do train through questions um and it's something that our team has learned a lot about over the years so if it's something that you want to learn more about if you're about to start a project where you're needing to write scenario questions what we're going to do today in a casual format is kim and i are just going to go through our process for writing scenario questions share some insights with you and just talk through how we do it um, at bell vista studio so thanks for being here kim with me <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure so excited to be here it's an honor awesome before we get in, Hannah, before you start, I was just going to say there is a free resource on this on the Creator Hub. The link is in the description. So you can go download these exact steps as well. So if you don't make it to the end of the video, you know this now. So go grab that free resource. Back over to you, Hannah. Awesome. Very good tip, Kim. Love it. Okay. So step one, this is so important. And we say this all of the time. We are a bit like a broken record because we say this daily and Kim has taught me this, that it's so important to solve the right problem. Before you start writing your questions, before you get into any solution, you need to make sure that you're solving the right problem. So I'll get started, but you jump in Kim because yeah, yeah, go for I've got insights on this, but I think the first thing is that you need to speak with your stakeholders. So there's a process that we run through called a creative conversation. We have a video that's solely focused on creative conversations on YouTube. So we'll put it in the description, but check that out if you want to learn how to do that. But what it means is you're getting your stakeholders into the room. So your subject matter experts, a client, if you're working with them, your boss, if you're doing a project for them, um, some end users, because they're going to be using the solutions to the people who are going to be answering your questions and who you're training. Get them in the room and ask the right questions so you know that you're solving the right problem. So some of the questions are, what, what is the user experience going to be like? What do you want that to look like? What's the ultimate goal? But check out that video and you find out more about those questions. Um, do you have any advice on that conversation, Kim? Because I know you've had that conversation a few times with clients? Yeah, I think quite often clients come and they actually don't even know the problem that they're trying to solve. So just having this conversation is really important because one person that contacts you has an idea, but then their boss has another idea, then the project sponsor or the person, the like employees all have different ideas about the actual problem that they think we're being engaged to solve is. So bringing those right people into the room gets everyone on the same page. So I think that's really important. Um, a way, I guess, resources to help are, yeah, the, creator, uh, the Creative Conversation YouTube video that we have. But Kathy Moore has a business goal, like formula, which is really good to use. And you work with clients to help them fill in the gaps. So it's like, something that happens now will increase or decrease by this time period when people do X. So when you're filling that out with clients, everyone's on the same page. And then we know that our project or the problem that we're trying to solve is all aligned and agreed on. Another thing could just be a smart goal. Um, people might be quite familiar with that. So specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and timely. So just, 
framing the problem really helps with the rest of this process. Yeah. Really good advice. So I think another thing as well with solving the right problem is what we do is we end up with a success statement. So after you have that creative conversation, a really good way to have an output is from that conversation is to have a success statement. So you speak to your stakeholders, you get everyone on the same page and through that process, you say, okay, what does success look like for this project? And it's like what you said, having that measurable goal, but it's around having everyone agree on it. So before you leave the room, you say, okay, so from our conversation today, this is what we're as a group, we're saying that the goal is, is everyone, does everyone agree with that? Are we going to move forward with that? And that's really useful because later on in the project, if someone wants to, make changes to say a subject matter expert wants to change the content or they want to add different content. A really great question to ask is, does that help us meet our success statement? Exactly. I think that's critical and it holds that accountability for people that are like, let's put all this content in there too, or this is really important too. So exactly what you said, Hannah, how does this help us achieve our success statement? And a lot of the time they'll go, Oh yeah, different time and place for what I'm presenting. Yeah. Love it. So the next stage is a measurable and clear goal. So we have spoken about that. What we recommend is we love Kathy Moore. So if Mm. you haven't checked out Kathy Moore before, check her out because she is a I jumped a step. That's why I was like getting all excited. I've gone. So apologies, audience. Um, But what I just said in terms of the things, I was actually talking about this one. (laughs) You're a good instructional designer, Kim. You're always ahead of the game. You just... Uh, (laughs) But yeah, to make the goal measurable and clear, like Kim said, Kathy Moore, she's got a... Like, if you look on the internet, she's got like a how to create a training goal. Mm. Training goal. So check out her website. I'll put that in the description as well so you can check that out. Um, And yeah, it's just a really good way to make sure that what you're working towards is measurable and it's clear so you know what you're trying to achieve because I think that's so important before you get into creating your scenario questions. Human-centered design. This is our favorite thing. Um, So this is an approach that we absolutely love at Bell Vista Studios. You may have heard of it before. You may not have heard of it, but if you haven't, please look it up because it's really changed the way that we've done our projects and it's helped us create better scenario questions because it, it enables you to align the questions to the world of the people that you're designing for. So what we do is, is we, it's different for every project and it really depends, but some of the processes that we like to use or the tools are user interviews. So speaking to the people that you're writing the questions for and getting them to share real world experiences with you related to your project goal. So, for example, if your project goal is to um, increase patient satisfaction at a hospital, so this is the example we have in our um, How to Create Scenario Questions Guide, um, ask the users if it's increasing patient satisfaction and the goal is to help nurses build better rapport, in those user interviews you'd be asking, have you seen other nurses build rapport or like, have you noticed it in your area? And just get real world examples from them because Kim taught me this and it's an amazing thing. You actually don't always need to go out and get the content yourself. Mm -hmm. If you do the user interviews, they can give you the training content. 
Um, do you want to talk a little more about that, Kim? Because I know you're very passionate about how human-centered design can help you get that real-world content for your questions. Yeah, I think we think, you know, if we were to do this, any course, there's already courses out there a lot of the time. Why are we going on Google and trying to write a leadership course from scratch or anything like that? But I think the human-centered design activities really figure out what is contextual to the learners that we are designing for. So the user interviews are so valuable. Like we have specific questions that we ask them and that helps us get really tangible behaviors and actions and decisions that we need to focus on and train. And the other activity is empathy mapping. Should I be chatting about this now, Hannah, or am I meant to be chatting about it in a step that's about to come? <laughs> this is a step, girl. This is a step? Okay, cool. <laughs> so I love empathy mapping because empathy mapping is basically if you had an A4 piece of paper, you fold it in half and in half again, you have four quadrants. And in the quadrants, you are put yourself into what is the future desired state that I want our learners to be at the end of our solution. So the future desired state. And you look at it from four perspectives. What would I see people do? What would I hear people do? What would they be thinking or feeling? Or what would they be saying? And these are all aligned to the success statement, to your goal, right? You can also do it from the framing of the learner themselves so if the nurse was taking care or showing empathy what would they be seeing around the workplace if everyone around them was doing that well what would they be saying what would they be hearing and we talk about a future desired state because that allows us to capture that desired benchmark of performance that we're looking for the expectations that we are trying to lift the capabilities to through our training solution. And you can spend a while on an empathy, and actually by a while, I mean, you can do one in 30 minutes. So for the fact that if you could sit down for 30 minutes with your stakeholders, so someone that does it already, someone that's considered a high performer, maybe you want two of them, you want a subject matter expert, um, you want your project people on there as well, and they all contribute and they're just yelling out. Um, they would say this, they'd be hearing this, they'd be doing this, and you're just documenting it into the four quadrants. What that allows us to do is that is the content that we then go and use in Storyboard. So a combination of the user interviews and the empathy mapping is how we can create content. If you can only do the, any one activity, I would say it's always the empathy map because you get so much actions and behaviors from that, that you then go, okay, well, from here, I can write scripts because they've told me all the things that they should be saying in that future desired state. Um, the support, because they would be doing this. So you'd be able to go, okay, well, where would they find that information and go on our internet page? And this is the internet page. And this is a screenshot of what it looks like. So we're capturing everything. Then it's about massaging the content into a storyboard and from there it's very rare that we would actually i don't even know if i've ever had to go and find something out to write it for a module now like using this process because 
Where that is not captured, where the empathy map doesn't translate and there are gaps in your storyboard, for example, if that's what you're doing, or if you're developing straight into a template, well, sorry, e-learning. And I say that because some people are like, we don't storyboard, but you should always plan what you're doing next. So if that's in a storyboard, that's a plan. But if that's just a one pager where you're jotting down, we're going to focus on topic one and this is what's included in topic one. And then we go into topic two and this is what's included there. So some sort of plan. There's not been a time since starting empathy mapping that I've had to go, okay, well now I need to find out how to do that because I've always consistently through the empathy map going, do I have what I need to be able to storyboard? Do I have what I need to be able to create a training experience for us to achieve the success statement? And I don't stop the empathy map until I have clarified that for myself. And then sometimes there are gaps. And I'd say there's gaps in the content or gaps in the things that we need to train. Maybe there's like 10%. And then what I do is I go in the first review to the client, I go, or we do this, this is our process, is um, we're not sure on this or we need a scenario on this that we didn't capture on the day when we did our empathy map. Can you help us? And the client will do that. And so then we're pretty much there. And then it's just refining it and then putting it out into the world. Yeah, love it. I think it's so cool because human-centered design, it does help you create questions that align with the people that you're designing for. I think it's much better than writing scenario questions that you think might align to what yeah. their world is like, but it doesn't align with it. So <laughs> um, I think it's just a really great way to make sure that it, it's not just like a generic question where people are like that would never happen here or that doesn't make mm. sense for our environment or like it doesn't add value when it doesn't align with their environment. So I think, yeah, human centered design, it's a great way to write scenario questions because it helps you yeah, do that align to their world. So the next step is to determine the actions. So it's really important, I think, rather than focusing on knowledge, focus on the actions that the learners need to take to help you meet your project goal. So before you get into your questions, think, okay, if my project goal was met and I was successful with this project, what would my learners have to do differently? What actions would they need to take? And this is a stage where our team goes, okay, so what are these actions? We need to figure out what they are. We could know some of the actions from the creative conversation with the client and it could also, and most often, as we are saying before, comes from the human-centered design tools that we use. So they help us understand what actions would need to happen to help meet the project goal. Um, do you have anything to add to this part of the process, Kim? Um, I guess what's the difference between like, can you define an action or give an example of what that might look like for someone? Yep. Um, so for the example of nurses building rapport with patients to build yep. patient satisfaction, what we'd want to do is say, okay, what specific actions would nurses need to take to build rapport? So an example is we could have discovered from our user interviews that a nurse that builds rapport really well, asks the patient about themselves. So an action could be nurses ask patients about themselves. Yeah. So rather than knowledge of like nurses need to understand how to build rapport, we want to delve deeper and get really specific and say, okay, what actions help them have rapport with the patients or build rapport with the patients? Yeah. And I think what I would just add is the question I always ask myself is if I was a fly on the wall, 
what would I see someone do? If I can't physically see them do it, then it's not an action. Because a lot of the time we sit in this space of they need to understand the policy. What does that look like? So if I was a fly on the wall and someone was understanding the policy, what would they physically be doing? So that's the, the question I always ask myself to get to an action place as opposed to, yeah, nice to know information. Yeah, that's really cool. I think it is really useful to have that mindset. I know I did that the other day when I was doing a high level strategy and you were helping me refine it. Mm. What I missed is, is I needed to put more emphasis on like, if I was a fly on the wall, what would it actually look like? Because I think it's easy for us to just get into the mode of, oh, these are, these are all the things that we need to train on, but we don't actually think about how it looks like in the real world and how it's going to translate to a real yeah. environment. And that, yeah, it changed the way that I wrote the high level strategy once mm. I went, okay, how would that actually look like in reality? What would it look like? So I think that's a really good point for people to... Um, focus on when they're at this stage and this helps you get your learning objectives as well it helps you understand what you're going to be training on and what your questions are going to be based on mm. yeah I think it can be very easy to just have a list if we think about that high level strategy you can just list all the things like I need to cover all these things but then it's like like we had what was it like uh what is blah 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 I'm like well what does it look like in the real world? Or if you're a fly in the wall, what would, what is that thing? You know? Um, so it's, it helps you refine it. And then it's like, well, what is it? No, it's not. What is it? Because that's not important. Or how does that align to the net? Why would they need to know like a definition um, as opposed to an action? So a lot of the time we can just go, Oh, it's really important for the learner to know X, Y, Z but you need to go back then and go, okay, but if I, if I was a fly in the wall and I saw them do those things in my list that I think are the topics or the content that needs to be covered, what does that actually look like? Yeah. Okay, so once you've written your actions, you move on to writing your scenarios. So this is like, you're, you're starting you write to write- Hannah? Oh Just, yeah. Sorry. Um, we haven't talked about learning objectives, but we could go back to the screen before and yeah, mention yep. it more. Up in here. Yep. Okay. Cause I, I don't know where we should have mentioned that. Yeah. Learning objectives happen in the actions part. So, okay, cool. So let's expand yeah. on that a bit more just to talk about blooms. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do you want to talk about it or do you want me to talk about it? You do it. Yeah. Okay. So, when you're determining your actions, it helps you get to your learning objectives. What we have learnt through creating learning objectives to make them useful and successful and actually have an impact, we use something called Bloom's Taxonomy. So look it up. It's a pyramid that takes you through the different levels of learning. So what you need to try and do is aim for the top of the pyramid and correct me if I'm wrong Kim because you are an expert, I'm an expert <laughs> but yes aim for the top <laughs> um, aim for the top because the top is the best opportunity that you have to create behavior change so have a look and we actually look at it and use the words that are in the pyramid so we make sure okay when we're writing this learning objective let's have a look at the different words so examples could be like understand that would be the lowest level of the pyramid mm -hmm. If you want people to understand at the top of the pyramid, I think it's like, um, it could be like create. 
So someone like actually doing something in the real world, it could be um, formulate. I don't know exactly what each. Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, use that pyramid and pick out the words to start off your learning objective and aim for the top of the pyramid. Yeah. Um, and yeah. when you, if you have the top, I think the top one is apply. And then there's like words that are associated within that. If none of, if you can't create a training activity based on that one, you go down a level and then you figure out, okay, this is what I need them to walk away doing differently. So what in this next level of the triangle can I do that will help me create an activity aligned to that to achieve the success statement? So always it's like success statement and then learning objective and then the action is aligned to that and then all the things that we're about to talk about in the next steps. Um, but really being clear on, like we had a discussion the other day where one of the learning objectives was identify and I was challenging you and saying, well, would they identify this? I don't think they'd identify it. And is it relevant for them to identify? Because the, there was no actions aligned to identify in what was part of that high level strategy. What was aligned was someone being able to describe the thing. And I was like, well, if I walked away as a learner based on what's there, I wouldn't be able to identify it, but I'd be able to just recall the list that's being given. Um, so really questioning what does this look like in the real world when they walk away, what will they be doing differently and have the things that actions that I've decided they need to do, are they aligned so that when that person completes the actions, your training activities, your scenarios, they will be able to walk away and do that learning objective in the real world physically. Yeah. I love that. I think that's really important thinking about how would it look in the real world and does my learning objective, is that how it's going to look in the real world? Are people going to walk away, like you said, and be able to identify something or are they going to be able to recall something? Yeah. And yeah, just getting the language from that Bloom's taxonomy has been really, really useful. It helps you understand what level of learning you're giving the learner. So like, are you helping them do something different or are they, do they just need to understand? Yeah. And like you, we shouldn't really be creating learning around understand either because it probably exists in a policy or whatever, you know, so that's the support stuff where it's more like, the policies, the intranet, any support resources that you put into your solution, that's the understand and you'll have a look at it where it's like, yeah, understand is like school where you had to recall your like times tables or spell words. Like how does that so help someone now in the workplace do their job better? It doesn't really. What we want and we know from the 70-20-10 model is that 70% of effective learning happens on the job. So if we're playing up at the top of the triangle, we're helping people do something in their job better. And that's our responsibility to have that behavior change, to create return on investment, to add value to the business. Yeah, love it. Are you ready for the next one, Kim? Yeah, I'm excited. Woo, let's do it. Okay, so you have your actions and your learning objectives. So now you're getting into writing the question. The first part is you need to write the scenario. So the scenario is about setting the scene. Do you have any advice on how to do that, Kim? I'll let you go first this time. Um, I would say you just go back to your empathy map. You go back to your user interviews, the human-centered design activities. 
you go back to there because you've got stories, you've got situations, you've got scenarios, and you're not having to write them from scratch because they've been given to you by the people that live this every day. And so you basically have a scenario and you pick the one that is aligned to your learning objective, which then maps back to your success statement and you put that into actual sentences. Cause I know when I take notes during the empathy mapping it is not very clear, it's just like, blah, blah, blah. so you make sentences, but you already have the scenarios. You shouldn't be starting these from scratch. They have been done for you. They have been given to you by the client or the users. Yeah. I think another important point too that we've learned is to show, not tell. So yeah. and keep your scenario. You don't need to write a massive paragraph explaining every single thing that's happening. Like you walk into a room and the sun's shining in on the ground and there's a bed over there. Like you don't need to give all of that context. Yeah. You can show and not tell. It's much more engaging. It's more concise. It's easier for the person to take in the information and they're not spending extra cognitive load on trying to figure out what you're explaining and reading all this text. Mm. Um, another way is images. So if it's possible through your learning solution to show what you're trying to tell through an image is really yeah. useful. Um, storytelling. So we've got a blog on um, using storytelling for learning to help engage your learners. That's something else that you consider. You can consider when writing your scenarios. Mm. Um, and we also have a video with Nicole. Um, oh yeah. Amazing at writing for scenarios and writing for instructional design. So um, I'll put that in the description so you can check that out and that helps you understand some tips and tricks from someone else on how to write scenarios. Um, do you have any other tips, Kim, before we move on? I would always just think like, put yourself in the first person view and mm -hmm. what is happening in the workplace. So like how you were saying, the sun is shining. Well, if I'm about to make a decision and action, I'm not paying attention to that unless it's relevant to my action and decision. So what is the first person perspective? What's going through my mind? What am I seeing? What am I hearing? How am I feeling? That's what you need to put into your little square, which is your storyboard or your, um, your e-learning experience. First person perspective, you should have already have the content if you've done your human centered design activities. Yeah, awesome. Okay, next up is the question. So you have your scenario, you set the scene, the learner knows what's going on, something's happened. And the question is around getting the learner to do something, to make a decision. So mm -hmm. some examples are, you've set the scene, something happens and you might say, what do you do? That could be a question. Another one could be, what do you say? Mm -hmm. so this part is just like, okay, you've got the scenario, what's the action or what do you want the learner to respond to? Yep. Anything else on that, Kim? pretty simple no, it's just really simple yeah you yeah. need to make a decision prompt that decision through the sentence like Hannah just said yeah and make sure that what the question that you're writing and the action that you want the learner to take is aligning to your learning objective and the action that you're trying to take so for example if you're trying to get the learner to say the nurse needs to learn to ask questions ask the patient questions to build rapport an example question would be like what do you do and you want to make sure that the learner is making a decision that helps them understand that they need to ask questions to build rapport. So make sure that that question is helping you meet your learning objective and your ultimate goal. Yeah, 100%. The answer options. Oh, so the answer options are the different 
decisions that the learner can make through your learning experience. Now there's quite a few different things to consider when you're writing your answer options. The first thing is, I think, of course, you need to have the correct answer option as the action that you want to train. So like I said before, the correct answer option needs to be what the learner would do and what you want them to do to contribute to your project goal. Now, this is an interesting thing. The incorrect answer options, we have found that rather than just coming up with random actions that the learner would probably not take, and I know sometimes questions can be so obvious, like you're like, obviously I wouldn't do that. So the, the correct answer options, like the most obvious thing. But what you want to do is, is you want to cover the gray areas. And Kim says this often, we need to attack the gray areas. So what, what are some things that the learners might do and might think is the right thing to do, but it's not helping you contribute to your project goal. It's not the right thing. So this can often come from your human centered design approach. So you might discover, whoop, <laughs> you might discover through your user interviews that learners are taking a certain action that's not necessarily the right action, but it's a common action that they're taking. So you want to include that in there. Yeah. Do you have and any? Yeah, you're right. It comes from the empathy map. So when someone says, oh, they should say X, and then you just, a follow-up question is, what do they normally say? And then you document that. So that's your gray response um, that you can put into your answer options. It's the, the behavior that we're trying to train out as well. Yeah. Something else we've learned, I don't, let me know your thoughts on this, Kim, but we've had, we've worked on a project recently where the client has uh, requirements and they follow a process to help them write better questions. So we've been learning through that as well. And they told us that it's really useful to have the answer options, a similar length, a similar amount of words for each answer option. So you wouldn't want to have an answer option that has 20 words and then the first one only has one. Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts on that, Kim? I think this comes from the old way, well, the old, but it still exists of, you know, yes is the answer and no is the answer. And then like some maybe with like three sentences afterwards where they've tried to say, and then you need to check the policy and then you need to do this and this. And they're trying to do the learning in the answer. Um, like, or sorry, they're trying to get the actions and behaviors that they're trying to train into the answer. So I always think, it needs to add value and it needs to be realistic and therefore the length shouldn't matter. If you're clear on the answer options and they are realistic to the real world. So this is what people should say. This is what a lot of people say, but it's wrong. Here's another variation of that thing that they tend to say, but it's wrong. And here's something we definitely well, like, maybe a combination or a blend of those, or it's similar to the correct one, but it's a variation of it. And it has a bit of the behavior that's wrong that we're trying to train out. So always, if you catch yourself with your answer options, it's thinking about what is the decision or what would be going through someone's mind or what action would they be taking? That's what needs to go there. If you're writing scenario questions like this, it's different to the multiple choice questions that are, you know, all of the above, you, you know, like it's a different level of learning that we're talking about here. You shouldn't be trying to put the things that you're trying to train or that you want people to do into the answers because you have feedback to do that. 
So focus purely on what's the action or decision I want someone to take? What's the behavior? What would they do? What would they see? What would they say? How should they be thinking in this situation? Because it's almost like muscle memory that we're trying to train by those answer options. Yeah. But I think they should be, well, we're going to get to this shortly, but they need to be reasonably like, you don't think about like a whole lifelong story in a scenario. Um, if we do that, it tends to be a branching scenario, but it's not happening in the one question that you're asking right here. So what is it specifically that I need people to do differently as a result of this one answer option that I'm going to make them choose? Yeah. That's really cool. I think another thing I thought of as well, um, when you're writing your answer options, you don't want to make the incorrect ones obviously incorrect for other reasons. So you did a, uh, a video conversation or a podcast with Kara North, Kara North. Yeah. Um, and she, I'm going to put that in the description. If you check that out, she takes you through a multiple choice project that multiple choice question project that she worked on. And it talks about the different ways that we can, it's hard to explain, but like you could have an answer that actually is like grammatically incorrect. Mm. If you read it with the question and then the learner's like, Oh, well, obviously it's not that one because they've, yeah, it doesn't make sense. So um, I'll put that There's in. really good tips in that, actually. Yeah. I learned a lot and got a lot of the questions wrong. So that will tell you how to write effective multiple choice questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. Moving on. So the feedback. So you've written your question, your scenario, your question, you've got your question answer options. Now it's about what feedback are you going to give the learner when they select the correct answer and they select the incorrect answer. So yeah, yeah. There's different ways that you can do this. What we like to do is, I'm going to try and remember because we do have a way that we do it, but I'm really going off the list that we've written. Um, but for the correct answer, one of the important things is you want to reinforce their behavior. So if they've selected the correct action, you want to reinforce and let them know that they've selected the correct action. You want to help them understand why that action is the right decision to make. Correct me if I'm wrong, Kim. <laughs> I'm just trying to remember because it's different for each project. Yeah. But I think it's important as well to, for them to understand why they've selected the correct action and what the outcome of their action is. So they can see, oh, okay, if I make that decision, this is the outcome it's going to have. So for example, if you ask the patient a question, they'll respond friendly and it'll start to build that relationship so they can see oh okay if i take that action this is what would happen in the real world i can see why it's important now yeah um, so we just label that the consequences the consequences, consequences. of that decision yep good or bad and i think another important thing to include is to help them stretch and help them extend their knowledge so if they've selected the correct action it's likely that they already know how to do that thing. So let's help them become even better at what we're training. So whether it's something that they can try out in the real world to take their skill to the next level. So it could be, um, here's a resource with questions that you can ask, go out in the world and ask your patients a few of these questions and reflect on the relationship that's built through that process. Yep. Um, it could be videos, could be a TED talk, so you can curate content and get content to help them be better. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything else you want to add on the correct answer response and how you can support learners 
through the field? No, I think it's just reinforce, demonstrate the consequences, and then stretch them to do something even more. What does more of that good behavior look like? Or how could they develop themselves further in that action or that thing that the learning objective, which is the resources, a TED talk, further deeper learning for them to explore? Because sometimes you will pique their curiosity and people want to do better. So they're like, if they know, oh, empathy, I, this stuff is really interesting to me. Cool. They've given me a resource that's going to help me. Awesome. Yeah. So for the incorrect feedback, what you want to do is you want them to understand the consequence of that feedback. So mm -hmm. what happens in response to that? So they can see, oh, okay, if I take that action, this is the consequence in the real world. So I can see yep. now why I shouldn't take that action. And you want to help them understand what action they should be taking. Yeah. So that they know in the future, it might be through like a try again, give them a little bit of a hint and get them to try again and realize mm -hmm. that this action might be the better action. Um, but just help them understand, okay, if that's not the correct answer, why? Yep. And what do I need to do differently next time? Mm. And I think I am of the belief that just because you get it wrong doesn't mean that you are, um, you don't know the answer. Like you, there could be a reason why you got it wrong. Um, and I think I like the idea of the correct and incorrect being very similar. Um, but it's reinforcing again, you might just, the language will be different based on the decision that they made. And even though you've identified that it's wrong in this instance, telling them the right answer, um, or you can do the try again. But I also think there's still people that are curious and want to learn. So I would still stretch people if they got it wrong. I think you're discriminating, you're not allowing them to um, have the same equal opportunity to learn if they get it wrong and then you're not saying here's some further learning on that because there's many reasons why people can get it wrong but at the end of the day if you have a human being that wants to be better and they're missing out on that further learning because they didn't get it right I don't think that's fair so I encourage people to consider right and wrong feedback similarly so reinforce the behavior demonstrate the consequences stretch the learner to do better Awesome. Love it. And that was cool. That's cool. That's a realization that we had. Well, I think you've always known it, but it's interesting how people do it differently. And it's something that we discovered through the most recent project that we've done um, where we, yeah, we do think it is important to give people equal opportunity and you don't want people to miss out on certain information or not have that opportunity mm -hmm. to extend just because they get the answer wrong. So I think that's a really good point, Kim. Nice. Okay. That is it. That is our process for writing scenario questions. So like Kim said, we've got a resource where it's mm. a PDF or a PowerPoint, is it, where you can go through and everything that we've spoken about, we've put it into a guide so you can follow that. Yeah. Um, what's the final advice you would like to leave with our lovely listeners, Kim? <laughs> Do you have one first? <laughs> um, I think the important thing is just to, I think human-centered design, I know I always talk about human-centered design, but I just think it's so important when you're creating your scenario questions to try and reflect the real world because it truly does help you meet your project goal. 
and actions. I think you really need to focus on what actions am I trying to train? Yeah. And making sure that your scenario questions focus on those actions. Yeah. Don't think questions like that focus on knowledge. If you just have all of your scenario questions focusing on like, what is the definition of mental health or whatever it is? I don't think that that will have the impact that you want it to. So yeah, my advice is please take the time to do human centered design, whether it's just an empathy map. Um, We have a YouTube playlist on human centered design Mm. activities. So you can check that out. If you want to learn how to do human centered design, use it, focus on the actions and yeah, check out our guide. It's something that you can follow and, if it's new, this is a new process for you, please use that guide because it's nice to use something that we have developed over time and that we've trialed and tested. So I think that will hopefully give you some more confidence. Yeah. So it's called how to write effective scenario questions. You'll find it on the creator hub, creatorhub.bellvistastudios.com. My final things are that, and I know Kathy Moore, I remember years ago reading something around put the activity at the beginning of the training And I think that multiple choice questions or scenarios like this, they can be your training. So you don't need to put all this like content and stuff that goes across, you know, like it doesn't need to be content, content information, then test the learner, just test the learner because we're smart. We know the basics. What we're getting wrong is the gray areas. So just throw them into the scenarios. Your whole solution could just be multiple choice questions. And the learning comes through the decisions that someone makes or through the feedback that you support that particular learning objective through. So I'd challenge you to start thinking about, is this a time where I just literally do scenarios and there is no free content or anything like that? Obviously you'd have like an introduction, welcome. These are the things, I don't know, you wanna get out of this or this is where we want you to be or why this, training solution is important, but then do your multiple choice questions and done skis. So yeah, I challenge you to just think differently about that. Yeah. Behavior change. Awesome. (laughs) Cool. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in everyone. Good luck with your scenario questions. Thank you, Kim. You absolute legend for sharing your knowledge. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Hannah, for putting this process because you were applying this whole thing and testing it as we were going through a most recent project so that we could create a resource to share with you. Um, So I think it's got really good results in terms of like the clients are really happy and saying these questions are really good. These questions are actually making people think. So I think you've got the great feedback to demonstrate that this process works. Um, So well done to you as well. Awesome. Confidence that it's making a difference and it's working. So yeah, it's really great to be able to share it with everyone that's watching or listening. Um, And yeah, good luck with your scenario questions and thanks for tuning in.